0: Revelation chapter 4, let's begin in verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We're grateful, Lord, that we get to worship you and the study of it. There are so many other things we could be looking at right now, but none of them are even close to your amazing word. Jesus, you said that, that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. And Lord, we want it to have its place in our lives in line with your heart, for it in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that each of us would grow in your word, that the ministry of your word would have your intent behind it in our lives, and it would have its place in our lives, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would shape us and mold us, make us more like Jesus, Lord, through it. We thank you, Lord, that it's eternal. We're grateful, Lord, that it'll pierce through everything it needs to pierce through in our lives, we thank you, Lord, that your, your word is so important to us. Lord, you've, you've done that work in our hearts. So we pray that our hearts would be open to you, that you would speak to us anything you want to speak to us about. Make us more like you, Jesus, through it. We trust that your spirit is at work. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I like to remind us of kind of the scene of what's going on here. Uh, The Apostle John has been banished to the island of Patmos. And just when he may have thought that what good could come out of that, God uses that, takes advantage of it to give him the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. The Father has given this revelation to the Son. The Son has given this revelation to his angel who has signified it to the apostle John, who is writing everything down, it would be received by these angels of the seven churches, these head elders. They would read it to the congregation. They would pass it around to the different churches and so forth. And so here John is in the middle of this horrible situation, horrible situation. And just when things seem to be darkest at times, God comes in and shines that great light and intervenes and interjects himself into the situation. Just think of the time when Israel hadn't had any prophets speak for 400 years. And at one of the lowest times, and then Jesus was born. I mean, there are so many times, even in our lives, when we were at our darkest time, where we didn't even know our need to the extent that we would later understand. He came in and we had that gospel preached to us and we received it and he completely changed our lives so for so many of us we were at the worst part of our lives and and so he is so good with that perfect timing and so today we begin to look at what happens after the church age ends the church age began on the day of Pentecost when the church was born so to speak and that age ends at the rapture of the church and so once again we need to look at our divine outline that's good you should say that sometime divine outline we have a divine outline in chapter 1 verse 19 let's look at it real quick Won't you go back to chapter 1 it's very important i keep mentioning this outline but this is the most one of the most important verses in the whole book of revelation chapter 1 verse 19 He says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And I want you to notice the last two words of that verse. After this. In the Greek, that's the two words, meta, tauta. You can write in your margin. Meta, M E T A, tauta, T A U T A. Very important. And why is that important? It's because one of our verses in our verse this morning. Begins and ends with those same two words. So go back to chapter 4 now. And I want you to look at these two words, metatauta, the beginning and ending of verse 1. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Notice the first two words there. After these things. Now look at the last two words of of verse 1, of chapter 4. I will show you the things which take place after this. So after this is metatauta. After these, at the beginning of the verse is metatauta. And so that helps us understand what's going on here. Without that, you're going to be lost. And so many people, when they try to interpret the revelation, they're after chapter four somewhere, and they're trying to figure out, they're trying to interpret things that, so they can make sense of the church on earth. But the problem is the church is not there. (laughs) The church is not there on earth between chapters four and chapters 19. Have you ever put a wrong key in a lock? It looks maybe similar and you you can get it in almost all the way and you think it's the right one. Maybe it's dark or something and you're jiggling it around and you're trying to get it to work and it just won't unlock that lock. That's what people do. They don't have the key of, of chapter 1 verse 19 to understand the whole division of the book. Remember, chapter 1 is the things that the Apostle John has seen chapters 2 and 3 constitute the things which are the church age from all the way from the the day of pentecost all the way to the rapture of the church that's the things that are that's why he's talking to the seven churches during that time because all of everything that he would say to them would be what we would need to hear related to what the church needs in the church age but after these metatauta we don't see that anymore. The things that are, are gone. The, thing, the church age is removed. And so, here we have John hear the Lord Jesus say, Come up here. We hear him say that. So here, the apostle John was raptured. And in verse 2, he tells us immediately that he was in the Spirit. Look at verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. So there's a door standing open in heaven. And he, notice he says in verse 1, the first voice which I heard, like a trumpet. So in chapter 1, verse 10, John describes the voice of Jesus, and he describes it that way. So he's saying, that same voice that I heard in chapter 1 is the same voice that I heard when I, when I looked and saw this, standing, this door standing open in heaven. It was like a trumpet speaking with me, and it said, come up here. Come up. He was raptured up. And I believe that's speaking to the rapture of the church. And you may remember when we looked at the church of Philadelphia, when he talked about, I will deliver you out of the trial that's going to come upon the whole earth. He didn't say, I'm going to deliver you through it. He said, I'm going to deliver you out of it, out of the trial that's about to come on the whole world. So because of that, he's speaking of the rapture and so forth. And so I want to look at this morning, I want to look at the biblical basis for the rapture, but I also want to look at its intended effect on our lives as far as God's concerned. The rapture isn't just a theological position. It's not, okay, I know we're going to be snatched away and so forth. There's implications that God has in mind for us. Speaking to pastors, Pastor Chuck once said this about the rapture. He said, the rapture refers to that time... When Jesus is going to come without warning and take away his church from this earth, after the rapture, the Lord will pour out his wrath upon this sinful world. There are many pastors who claim an ignorance of the rapture or say that they are not certain whether it will precede the tribulation. They say they don't really know where they stand on the issue. I don't believe there is an excuse for not having a position on this issue. We have our Bibles and we're capable of studying this subject thoroughly. I believe that your view of the rapture will have a significant impact on the success of your ministry. And I would add, it has a significant effect on the success of our walk as believers. It has a very, God has intended it to be, have a very significant impact in our lives, knowing that the rapture could happen at any moment. So let's look at a couple passages. Uh, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. If you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles on the back table. And so you can flip around and be able to see what we're looking at. So let's turn, let's hold our place here if you'd like, and but turn to First Thessalonians chapter four. First Thessalonians chapter four. As you're turning there, I do want to mention there's a couple different objections that, that are popular related to the the pre-tribulation rapture, where the rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation. One is, we don't see the word rapture in the Bible. Well, that's because you don't have a Latin Bible. Go get the Latin Vulgate and look at that. Raptus is in there. And so we, that's where we get the word rapture. And then another objection is, well, that's just wishful thinking. How many of you heard that? You just want that. You want to be snatched away before the tribulation. Yeah, you're right. That is true. Let's be honest. I don't want to see that that Antichrist. I don't want to see the wrath of God poured out on this world. I don't want to see all that. That is true. But I don't believe that because I you know, because just because I want it to believe it to be true, I believe the scripture shows us that. There are a lot of things that when people bring that objection, I usually try to find something that is true from the scriptures that they like you know that, that they appreciate is true and i say we'll see you, maybe that's wishful thinking on your part you know uh i try not to get into bad, bad arguments and try to you know be a little bit godly about it when you're but i don't really get into these big debates you know when you're first when you're a new christian man ooh, i'm gonna prove the world wrong on every little thing in the bible i'm ready for the fight and all that and the older i get in the lord the less i just have a desire to to argue period but especially with scripture I'd rather just give them time to learn how I'm right and they're wrong, you know. So anyway, First Corinthians or uh, First Thessalonians, rather, chapter four. Let's begin in verse thirteen. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Now those two words, caught up, that's, that's what if you had a Latin Bible, it would say, Rap, uh, raptus, there. So that's the word. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. All Bible believing Christians believe this will happen. That at one point in time there'll be a generation of Christians. I believe we are that generation, and it's not just wishful thinking. It's other things that I see. But I believe there will be a generation that will be alive when Jesus descends. Can you imagine, just, I mean, really think about that. At any moment, we could just be snatched up. And when it says caught up, the Greek word, it's harpazo, and it means to violently, abruptly snatch. I think of, okay, I'm dating myself again, but Marlon Perkins, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I think of those eagles coming down and or hawks, or whatever they were, and just come in there, and just snatch those fish right out of the, the lakes, or whatever, they just get snatched away, and that doesn't even compare to this kind of snatching away, the power that it would take, you know, Romans 8, 11 says, he, if he, uh, he who rose from the dead, if he lives in you, he will also raise your bodies to life, so whoever's alive at that time, because they have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he will be the catalyst that makes that happen, that pre- transforms us and we're metamorphosized into our glorified bodies at that moment there. And so that's going to happen. I can't imagine how amazing that will be. And and notice in these verses here, he says that the Lord will descend from heaven, but he never says he gets to the Mount of Olives and puts his foot down. See that's the second coming. So he's going to descend, then we're going to be caught up to meet him and then we're going to go back to heaven for seven years. There's the marriage supper of the lamb that we're going to enjoy. There's, there's rewards. There's the judgment seat of Christ that we're going to experience and so forth. There's all these things that we're going to experience while everything that's happening down here is happening. And so that's, that's our position. So everybody agrees that it will happen. But where the disagreement comes in is when it will happen. When will it occur? There's going to be a seven-year tribulation. Sometimes people refer to that seven-year tribulation as beginning when the rapture happens, and that's not the truth. What, what actually begins that time of seven-year tribulation is the Antichrist is going to sign a seven-year peace contract. Israel will be a part of that. Other nations will be a part of that. Now look at right now in our news. I've had people say, man, you're teaching through Revelation at this time? What's going on in Israel and all these things? And yep. We are. It's perfect timing. But Israel's in the news every single day, right? And, and it's, it's been this... I mean, I've heard these newscasters get so cynical and jaded about the potential for peace in Israel because they know that it's decades and decades and decades they've tried to have peace with the palestinians and it hasn't worked every president's tried to do it everyone wants to be the president that actually gets it accomplished once and for all where the jews are getting along with the palestinians of course it's, they never focus on the palestinians getting along with the jews they always focus on israel and so but someone someone is going to pull that off it's going to be the antichrist he's going to super and i believe it's going to include in that whole arrangement the the building of the third temple and they're already preparing in Israel for that third temple. Everything's prepared just about for that third temple. There's a place on the temple mount where the, because the, the, um, the dome of the mosque is there. I believe it's the third or second or third most holy place in Islam. And the, people wonder, well, that's going to have to be moved for the temple. No, it doesn't. It fits perfectly in the court of the Gentiles where that mosque belongs. <laughs> you know, so there's room for them to both be on that mount there. So that I believe that'll be part of, of that arrangement there. And, and if you go to Israel and you ask them, and I've done it, you ask them, how will you know when Messiah comes? Every single time you ask that, they usually will say, he'll bring peace. They are divinely set up. The Lord Jesus said, I come in my own name and you don't receive me, but there will come one who comes in his own name and you will receive him. He was speaking of the Antichrist. So when that Antichrist signs that peace covenant with Israel, which he'll break three and a half years later, then that's when the seven-year tribulation starts. So the question is, especially if you're newer to the the Bible and so forth, when does the rapture happen? Does it happen at the beginning or just before the tribulation starts? Or does it happen in the middle, which is called usually mid-trib or pre-wrath rapture? Or does it come at the end of the seven-year tribulation or at the second coming of Christ? We get caught up and then we come back right back down. Just so I don't believe that. So we're coming back with Christ, and we're going to see that in Revelation 19. Where we're coming back with Christ. So um, there's a lot of problems with, I believe, with the mid-trib position and the post-trib position. They're still believers, you know. If they have the essentials of the Christian faith, of course they're born again. We don't break fellowship over that, but um, you know that's the position that we have. We we believe in the pre-trib rapture. So. We need to understand that. Now Matthew 24 verses 21 and 22, Jesus talked about this tribulation. He said, "For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened." And the elect there, he's talking about the Jews. The tribulation is all about God's relationship with the Jews. And the problem that churches get into is they start interpreting the church as spiritual Israel and they th- they say that God is done with Israel since since the new covenant and that's not true at all. There's so much going on. I mean, the seven-year tribulation is called Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. It's talking about the Jews when Matthew 24 is all about The Jews and God's dealing with the Jews. The elect there in that verse is talking about the Jews. He says that when when the Antichrist uh, goes in and defiles that temple and and causes the abomination of desolation there, he says hope you know woe to nursing moms and you know he said pray that your journey won't be on the Sabbath. He's talking to Jews. The whole context of Matthew twenty four is talking dealing with Jews in the great tribulation there. In the last three and a half years of that seven years, is called the Great Tribulation. That's where God's wrath is poured out on this world. And when you look at what the scripture says, and we're going to see it when we get to, I think it's chapter six, somewhere in there. There's a couple references to when these bold judgments and all these judgments are being poured out, how many people die. And it's revealed that roughly 25% of the world's population will be alive at the end of the seven year tribulation. So if that happened today, let's say the rapture happened today and tomorrow the Antichrist signed that peace contract or whatever. And it started. So that would mean that the end of the tribulation would be like in 2021. And, and right at that end, it culminates with Jesus physically coming to this earth. We're behind him and so forth. We see that in Revelation chapter 19. But right now there's 7.2 billion people on this earth. So that would mean if 25% were left alive, that means 5,400,000,000 people would die. That means we'd go from 7.2 billion to 1.8 billion. Think about that. Think about how ill prepared we are for any natural disaster. Just think of Hurricane Katrina. Just a hurricane. I'm not minimizing how powerful that was and how it caused pain with people, but I mean a hurricane. We're talking 100-pound hailstones. We're talking about the seas and uh, everything turning to blood. We're talking about I mean, you can go on and on and on. We're going to see all these judgments and you're going to think, and I I could think, this is kind of excessive, God. But God is a perfect judge. There's not going to be one tiniest bit of judgment that's going to be too little or too much. He's a perfect judge. And you think about all the things that God sees every day. Think about every motive that he sees, every thought that we have, every sinful thought that we have, every murder that's behind closed doors, every rape that's behind closed doors, every time someone gets uh, you know, mistreated in any way, every sin he sees, all of that. The Christ rejection that's going on in this world, the blasphemy, the beheadings. Isn't it interesting that we are seeing more and more beheadings in the news? That's in Revelation. When the, the tribulation saints reject the mark of the beast, they're going to be beheaded. And it's interesting, we're starting to see more and more beheadings in the news. And that's going to be something that people are going to be totally fine with. They're going to be so deceived by that Antichrist. They're going to be so deceived by the lie, the delusion there that they believe the lie, that they're going to think that that's that's okay. So huge judgment is coming. So God doesn't want us to be Ignorant. He even said that in 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 13. I don't want you to be ignorant. So we, we, he wants us to know what's going to happen. That's why we're studying this book. Now let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. And let's begin reading in verse 51. It's a long chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51. Behold I tell you a mystery. We shall not all, not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must be Put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So notice, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is a twinkling of an eye? It's it's said that it, the, as fast as light reflects off an eye, that's how fast that is. It's hundreds of a second. We're talking. That's how fast he's going to snatch us away, and we're going to get our new bodies and meet the Lord in the air. And he said the dead will be raised. So at that time, the rapture, the dead in Christ shall be rise, raised first. They're going to get their new bodies, be resurrected. We're going to be caught up with them. And it's very possible that since eternity is outside of time, that as far as people's concerned that die, th- the first thing they experience is the rapture of the church. And so, in their, you know, they die. let's say they died hundreds of years ago. The first thing they experience as a Christian. I mean, they're, they're a Christian and they die. The first thing they experience is right at the rapture. So we don't know how all that works, um, but it'll be wonderful. It's hard to believe that um, we're getting that close. <laughs> now I want us to turn over to Genesis chapter 18, because there's a couple principles, a couple pictures that I want us to see. I wanted, I wanted us to look at two scriptures, but I also want us to look at a couple uh, scriptures related to how God deals with the righteous when he's judging. Genesis chapter 18. Verse 25. He says, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right so here abraham is praying with god about sodom and sparing lot and his family and so forth and he's expressing his principle that he knows about god that god will not punish the righteous with the wicked and i call this the principle of fair judgment god doesn't allow the righteous to experience any of his judgment when dealing with the ungodly he gets them out of there Uh, it happened with noah god didn't punish noah and, and his family, his three sons and their wives and so forth, didn't lump them in with the rest of the world. He made a way of escape and so forth. And then uh, there's one more example. I want us to look over at Genesis 19. And this has to do with God rescuing Lot and his family. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to them, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So that's when actually God did it. So God, Abraham was pleading with him to do it and expressing that this is how you are, God, your faith, you're fair, you're not, you're not uh, you know, you don't lump in innocent with guilty related to judgment. And then we actually, you see the angels taking them out of the city. So there's this pattern that God pulls out the righteous before he judges. And that's important related to understanding the, the rapture being at the begin before the tribulation starts. Because people that believe in mid-trib or post-trib, they believe that God preserves Christians through the tribulation. But God doesn't do that. He pulls people out before he judges. Now a couple more scriptures. Uh, turn over to Romans chapter 5. right after the book of Acts, which is right after the Gospels. Romans chapter 5, and let's begin in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9 is one of the keys. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we're going to be saved through. we're going to be saved uh, from wrath through him. So eternal punishment, but also it includes any other type of wrath uh, from him. The wrath that we deserved was poured out on Jesus. He's the one that took our wrath. There's a difference between being disciplined and having his wrath being poured out. Being, wrath being poured out is judgment and retribution without the idea or thought of training. With God, we're disciplined in the sense that we discipline our, how we discipline our children. We're not getting back at them. <laughs> we're not trying to hurt them. Hopefully, we're not doing that. You're doing it as training. So that's the discipline that we get as believers. Now, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. A few more books to the right. And I'm going to read verse 9. First Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just hell. It's any kind of wrath. Salvation isn't just me being in heaven. Salvation is the... Pro- We're being saved right now, the Bible says. We're in the process of being delivered uh, to heaven right now. And that's what sanctification is... Is about. So we're not appointed to wrath, and so you're asking potentially, you know, when does the rapture happen? Let's see, where's my date? I have a date here somewhere. No, I don't. No one knows the day or the hour when that happens. See, all through, the, if you look through this in the scriptures, they were expecting that to happen at any moment in church history and so forth. The rapture has always been imminent, it could happen at any moment which is another evidence that it can't be in the middle of the tribulation or the end of the tribulation. Because once, that, once the Antichrist signs that peace contract with Israel, there's exactly seven years before the end of that tribulation. So I, if I were mid-trib, I would just count three and a half years. Okay, that's the day. I can know it. If it was post-trib, that's my position. I could count seven years. I can know. They, it, so it loses its imminency. We're not looking for anything else to happen prophetically for the rapture to, to happen. Now, as we look at things that are shaping up for, related to his second coming, if you look at Matthew 24 and you're looking and you're starting to see these things line up for his second coming, then you know how much closer is the rapture. Like Pastor Chuck would say to his wife Kay, when Christmas decorations were up, he'd say, oh, I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, those are Christmas decorations. Yeah, I know if, Chris, if I'm seeing Christmas decorations, Thanksgiving's before that. So how much more closer are we to Thanksgiving? And, and that's always been a great illustration. So we're seeing those things start to come together right now. We have all the, the, the technology for the mark of the beast right now. We have, we have Russia and Iran and these other countries that Ezekiel chapters 37 through 38 talk about this battle that happens where they, they, they come together in unity and attack Israel and God supernaturally defeats Israel's enemies where it's clear that God did it. Look at who's in a relationship right now, that Russia and Iran, you know, there's other nations as well. So there's, it's all coming together, but those aren't signs that the rapture is going to happen, but it's, it's signs that the great tribulation is coming and the second coming is, is happening, but we know if that's coming, how much closer is the rapture? What God's waiting for is the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Romans chapter 11 verse 25 says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See, there's a finite number that God has, knowing how many people are going to receive him. And when that number is fulfilled, then that's it. The rapture is going to happen. He's going to snatch us away and so forth. So if you're here and you haven't received Christ yet, and you're that last one, Better do it. So that gives us um, that gives us incredible urgency, you know, to think about. It could happen at any moment. Let me just look through here real quick. I'm looking for that date for the rapture. I don't have it. Good. I'm glad I don't have a date for the rapture. Aren't you relieved? Then you have to Put me on some blog as a false teacher. So, no, I just got my notes mixed up for a second, but I'm good. So, how does that affect our lives? We know the rapture is going to happen. It's going to happen before that seven year tribulation begins. And I, I liked, Pastor Chuck one time spoke about this and he had it recorded in a book. And so, I wanted to give you three ways that God uses the rapture in our lives. The first one is that he gives us an urgency for the for the work that he's doing, how he's expanding the kingdom of God. And so he wants to use us to do that, obviously. We're the main vehicle for him expanding his kingdom in this world, the kingdom of God, through the gospel. So how does that affect it? Well, because we know that he's coming back at any time. He could come back at any moment, and we want people to come to know him, especially friends and family members. and And this is an encouragement for us to continue to preach the gospel to our unbelieving friends and family. It's so hard to preach the gospel to those that know us really well. They know our failures. They know, I mean, it's been 25 years almost that I've known the Lord and my relatives are still waiting for this phase to end. Oh, it's just a phase. A quarter of a century. It's a long phase here. Um, So if he could come back at any moment, we want people to go to heaven. We want, you know, and so that creates an urgency in our lives. The second thing is that it gives us the correct perspective of material things. And that's, that kind of hits close to home for all of us. Because everything that he has entrusted us to, is he expects us to be good managers of those things. He owns everything. That's a big revelation for some of us when we come, first come to know the Lord. He owns everything. He owns everything that we have. It, they're His. And He calls us to be managers of that. And if He could come back at any moment, especially if we see Him getting getting closer and closer, well, what does that produce in my life? It causes me to have that be less of a priority, that I'm not so invested in this world that I can't think about eternity. God's always working in our lives to get us to be more uh, heavenly-minded. You know, you've heard that saying, you know, you became so heavenly-minded, you know, you're not any, you're no earthly good. That's not a biblical... Scripture. No one has been so earthly minded that they haven't been helpful you know, useful in this world. The more heavenly minded we are, the more profitable we are, the more fruitful that we, we are for Him. And so that searches our hearts. It searches us, what are we investing our time in? What are our priorities? Where is our money going? Where are what relationships do we have? Are we investing, are we thinking about eternal things related to the people that we talk to, whether they're believers or unbelievers? Are we thinking about eternity or are we sowing all of our time and our energy and focus into this world that's passing away and all of that ends at the rapture? We're going to be gone. Everything that we own is going to be left here. Whether we experience the rapture or we go to be with the Lord before the rapture, we can't take it with us. You've heard the saying, I've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul. That's a good saying. It's true because we can't take it with us. So we need to bring all those things. And it's not just our material things. It's our, what we're spending our time with. What are our priorities? What are we putting first? What do we spend most of our time doing? Are we checking our status updates more than we're checking our Bible? Oh, I'm getting kind of close to meddling now. I may be getting a little bit too close to home, even for my own life. We need to be serious about our walk with him and what we're pouring our time into what we're spending our time doing we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that we can get so concerned about well he knows that we need those things and he'll add them to our lives he knows what we need before we ask he says thirdly it provides additional motivation for purity that's very very important for us I want to read first John chapter 3 verse 2 and 3 where John writes this it's funny that it's John John the Apostle, same guy that's writing this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we don't exactly know what he's go- what we're, our bodies are going to be like, but we're going to be like his body. So we can learn a lot of things about our glorified body by looking at, at Jesus' body. So we know we know that. But then he continues. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So as we think about seeing him, as we think about engaging him and all those things, we think about, man, we have to give an account for our lives. And that's sobering. There is the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment, that only unbelievers are resurrected to, to endure that judgment. We're going to be, have a completely different judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And it's sad to me that so often that's communicated as just an award ceremony without any sobriety associated with it or grieving or whatever. When you look at the, that passage, he's talking about the seriousness of having all those things that, we're, that our lives represented and our ministries and so forth uh, put to, the, put to I mean, fire being put to it. And whatever remains there after it was tested, then we'll get a reward associated with that. And it says some will barely make it out as by fire. That's, that communicates sobriety. That communicates a seriousness to it. And when we think about, we're going to have to give an account for his money. We're going to have to give an account for what we're doing with it. We're going to have to give an account for our time. We're going to have to give an account for how we raise our kids, how we treat our wives, how we treat our husbands. We're gonna give an account for our service to the Lord. We're gonna to have to give an account for all of that. There's no he's not gonna be in a hurry. Okay, you know, we only got five minutes. Let's go through this really quick. He doesn't have time. I mean, it isn't there's not gonna be we're not gonna be limited by time. And we're gonna to have to go through I don't know if he's gonna go through our whole entire lives and and we're gonna to have to see everything that we did and said and our motivation I have no idea what that's gonna be like. But I know it's a serious picture that he paints for us. And it should search us. It should, it should cause us to assess our lives and to take stock and, and to take you know inventory. Where are what's my priorities? What am I sowing into? Am I sowing into this temporal world completely, or am I sowing into eternity by my time, my finance, whatever it is? And and it searches us. And to know that any second, even less than a second, any fraction of a second. He could snatch us up, and that judgment seat right then probably will occur. I mean, after the reunion with our family or whatever up there and so forth, that's not going to be too much longer before we're dealing with that, our lives here and giving an account for those things. Because I know if I'm at the, if I'm at the great white, or not the great white throne judgment, if I'm at the judgment seat of Christ, or if, you know, if I'm at the wedding supper of the Lamb, let's just say that. And we're feasting and rejoicing and all of that. And I know that that judgment seat of Christ where I'm going to have to give an account for my life here is coming. It's going to be harder for me to enjoy that, to think about that. So it it would be appropriate for him to have that be one of the first things that we experience is that judgment seat of Christ and get our rewards and so forth. And then totally enjoy that, that marriage supper of the lamb and that feast and all that. You know, it's funny. In the Old Testament, they have all these feasts that went on for long periods of time. Some of them weeks and they're feasting. They weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to do anything. They just, all they were supposed to do is have a great time and, and enjoy each other and eat and so forth. That's the Lord's heart. I like that. I like that. I like his heart for many reasons, but I really like that that we're going to be feasting and so forth. So just knowing he had come back at any moment and that judgment, that judgment seat of Christ is coming soon after that. We want him to come back and find us being Faithful. We want him to come back and find us being holy. We want him coming back and find us being about his business and occupying till he comes. To, we, we want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not good and talented servant, not good and, and whatever it is, all, charismatic servant or what, all these other things that can be the priority related to our service to the Lord. He just says, just be faithful. I've given each of you a certain talent and a certain stewardship. You just be faithful with what I've given. He doesn't say you should want more or want less. He just says you be faithful with what I've given you. And when I come, I will give you that reward. In Matthew 24, verses 45 and 46, he says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made rule over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. When he comes, we want to be found faithful. We want to be found obedient to him. We want to be found growing as a a believer. So that the rapture and knowing that that could happen at any moment and rejoicing that we're not going to experience the wrath of God is supposed to have its work in our hearts. Let's allow him to do that work in our hearts at any moment in time when we think about that rapture think about he could come at any moment and one of the things I always like to focus on when when I deal with the rapture is focusing on how much he's looking forward to it when you look at first Thessalonians chapter four when you look at that trumpet and all of that thing that's communicating celebration in heaven and it's it's easy for us to forget that he's looking forward to that rapture more than we are because he loves us way more than we love him and he can't wait for that. Remember, we're his bride. And the pre tribulation rapture perfectly fits for the Jewish wedding, where the man would go away, prepare a place for his bride. He would add on to his father's house. The father would determine when he would come back to get his bride and so forth. He'd go back, and then they would have kind of a honeymoon for seven days. It's interesting. He'd go away for seven days, just like seven years here. They'd come, I mean, it all fits perfectly. But it's all designed to show us how much he is looking forward to being with us. He's the groom. He loves his bride. He can't wait to be with his bride again. And we want to be the bride. I mean, any bride wants to be what the groom would be blessed with when he comes. So he wants us to be a prepared bride for him. And the rapture, just like that, those ten virgins waiting with that oil and so forth, they, were, they knew that that bridegroom could come at any moment. They wanted to be prepared and ready, and that's what he wants for us. So let's let that sink in, into our hearts and have its work in our lives. Amen.